Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We all know there's not enough affordable housing in the Bay Area. Just about everyone agrees that more needs to be built. And yet very few units are coming online anywhere in Northern California. One reason is that costs continue to skyrocket. According to a new LA Times investigation, there are seven affordable housing projects in our region where the cost per unit has reached over $1 million. Think about what that means. For every $1 billion we spend on affordable housing, we only create 1,000 units. And we need tens of thousands of affordable housing units to even make a dent in the housing crisis. We'll break down what's led to the cost explosion and what can be done about it after this news. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The state's most recent regional housing assessment for the Bay Area found that we're missing 180,000 housing units for low and very low-income people. No matter what type of housing you'd like to fill that gap or how you'd like to fund it, how much of it you can build for a given amount of money is determined by the per-unit cost. Simply put, if it costs $500,000 to build a unit of affordable housing, you can build twice as many units with the same money as you could if the cost per unit is $1 million. And as anyone who's tried to build or remodel anything in the Bay Area can tell you, construction costs have been skyrocketing across all types of housing. In so many of the debates about housing, this is the underlying financial reality that constrains the choices we have. So today we want to focus on the cost of building and talk about what policymakers, developers, local neighbors, whoever else can do to bring down this total cost. Joining us this morning are Liam Dillon, statewide housing affordability and neighborhood change reporter at the LA Times. Welcome, Liam. Good morning. We're also joined by Heather Hood, VP in Northern California for Enterprise Community Partners, which is a nonprofit focused on policy and funding innovations to build and maintain affordable housing. Welcome, Heather. Good to be here. And we're joined by Ben Metcalf, Managing Director of the Turner Center of Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley and former Director of of the California Department of Housing and Community Development. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Good morning. Uh, Liam, let's start with you. Can you just tell us about the story that you published and why projects surpassing that kind of $1 million per unit threshold felt so remarkable? Yeah, so uh, myself and uh, some colleagues at the LA Times particularly look at the cost to build affordable housing in California for some time, very much for some of the issues that you mentioned. Basically, the, you know, the, 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 the more affordable it is, if you will, to build these projects, the more housing units we can build uh, in the state. And of course, the need is great and vast. And so we first took a deep dive on this issue a couple of years ago um, and found that there was one project that had eclipsed that one million per unit 
estimated threshold. That was down in Southern California. And that project was so expensive that it ended up collapsing. It was just unable to, uh, unable to finance. And so we want to take a look again to sort of see what had happened in the intervening years. And just two years now, we've found, you know, seven projects, and these are all located in Northern California. And these are projects that are, you know, uh, far beyond where the last one was in Southern California. So they're, they're either under construction or about to break ground, where the cost per unit is over a million dollars. And so we've really seen a dramatic escalation um, in the in in this cost over the past couple of years. And, you know, that, again, hurts our ability to to build. Yeah. So just to be clear, we're talking the all in cost of building unit, right? Not just narrowly in terms of construction costs, wood, steel, labor, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. You know, the, the way the state calculates this is sometimes takes land into account, sometimes doesn't. Obviously, that's a huge cost. Um, there are other costs that are, you know, actually more prominent than land. But certainly in in California and northern California in particular, land costs are a big driver. Yeah. Um, are these projects that you've highlighted, are they outliers or are they you know, kind of in line with the, the cost of other things, but maybe just on the high end? Yeah. So um, I think at the moment they're outliers. But as I mentioned, I mean, we're getting to the point where this is becoming, you know, a, a regular feature of how much it costs to build, particularly in, in Northern California. And, you know, as I said, um, this threshold was not really eclipsed by a project that was, um, you know, under construction or to be finished as recently as two years ago. And now we have, you know, seven projects um, that were funded by the state in the past two years over this amount. And there's an, at least another six that we found that have been proposed that are also over this threshold. And so this is becoming a number that I think was once seen as, you know, a real marker for things getting out of control in terms of the cost to build. And now we're, you know, regularly eclipsing it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the number we've heard kicked around on the show before as kind of a uh, in average cost to build was like half a million dollars. And then we started to hear developers who were on the show say $750,000, $800,000. And now we, we see this. You know, uh, Ben Metcalf, w- talk to me about why construction costs are going up across the board for housing. Because this obviously isn't just affordable housing. It's happened uh, across the construction industry. Yeah, sure. So we've done uh, a little bit of digging in this question, both on the affordable side and on the sort of conventional market rate side. And clearly the largest single driver of this overall cost increase is the cost to construct. So the hard cost, the literally the cost to hire laborers, contractors, as well as materials. And mm-hmm. both of those have factors have gone up uh, much at a much greater rate than the rest of the components. And the story there are things that are probably familiar to most of us. Uh, It's a very tight labor market. Uh, A lot of the workforce that was in the construction sector in the late uh, during pre-financial crisis never came back into the labor market. Uh, Of course, we have supply chain problems with materials, shortages more broadly. Um, That's probably the single biggest cluster of cost increase. Mm -hmm. What are the things, if, if there are two buckets, things that are sort of global in nature or like far beyond what is possible for a, a local or, or regional governments to control. That's one bucket. What about the bucket of things that are kind of within the power of a local, regional government neighbors, you know, fighting projects? What, what are the things that are in our control in this cost bucket? Uh, actually, an awful lot. Uh, I mean, certainly the, the, the sort of the fact of what we end up building is a function of what is allowed in those spaces. And so, or what is required in those spaces. So certainly the, down to the level of 
how thick are your studs and how much insulation do you put in? Those are things that are often set through regulation. Uh, the building codes are set by the state. They're implemented at the local level um, and they can affect how much a project costs. They also translate into a building that may be safer or more livable. Um, design matters also are often set at the local level. You have planning commissions and design guidelines and um, folks who review and, and, and ask for upgrades to the architectural windows and facade treatments and those improve the quality of the building in the neighborhood, but they, they also add to the cost. Um, and then you have the factors of just how quickly it can take a project to be approved. So a project may propose to get built in uh, 2018, but it may sit for two or three years as it goes through a uh, planning commission, city council, potential um, review through litigation before it can finally uh, be allowed to build building yeah. permits. And those are the kinds of things that, that add a lot to the cost. So, I mean, it seems like oh. one way we could get at the local burden that's being imposed in this case, and maybe that burden is, is totally reasonable and good, is that, you know, different cities have different policies, different counties have different policies. You know, we've got all these cities in the Bay. We've got all these counties. And one of the things that was really surprising about Liam's story to me is that one of the projects that we're looking at is in Concord, not just, you know, which, of, of course, is an expensive housing market in a national sense, but relative to San Francisco or Oakland, which is where the other projects are. It's not. So what is, does that tell us anything about sort of where the costs really are being imposed, that maybe it's at the state level or maybe it's in, in that it's not just about the hyper-local policy? I mean, again, I was here with the... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Man. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I think one thing that we really focused on in our story was the extent to which California is an, sort of an extreme outlier in its bureaucracy for funding affordable housing developments. You know, most large states have one agency that hands out affordable housing dollars. California has five, right? Um, and there are varying requirements for for what gets funded. These agencies, they report to different elected officials at the state level, which means no one is in charge of overseeing the system as a whole. Um, and so we see a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of cost increases as, as a result, you, you know, from that um, very kind of thorny and difficult system. Just to give one example, there was a study that was done by the U.S. Government Accountability Office in 2018 that found, you know, 14% of the price tag for California affordable housing projects was made up of consulting fees and other administrative costs, which was the highest in the country and more than developers are spending on land. And so all that time and all that effort and all those consultants that are needed to navigate this, you know, real outlier in terms of bureaucracy absolutely is a uh, is a cost driver and something that, you know, if politicians wanted to tackle it, they could. Yeah. You know, you know, let he me jump in here for Go oh, great, a Heather Hood, uh, VP Northern California Enterprise Community Partners. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. You know, um, the cost of construction has seriously gone up and we need to do something about it. But I think what we're hearing is that on every level at the state, local, labor and um, materials, uh, we're, this, is a, this is a problem that has it is multi-pronged and we've got to solve it at, at um, across all sectors and at all levels. So it's no one particular thing we've got to work together. I wanted to just point out though, that the cost of construction has, is, has jumped quite a bit over the pandemic and it's across, as you said, all different construction types. It's been going up my entire career for almost mm -hmm. two decades. We've seen these prices go up and gasped every single time. So, what my concern is, is that not only can we uh, 
do we need to focus right away on bringing and constraining those costs? But we also can't kick the can down the road and in five years be back on forum talking about how they've gone up again. We've got to just face the facts that we've got to invest in a bold way in affordable housing as I mean, soon as it, possible. Heather, this is such a good point. Um, what does it say that people have known this was a problem for your entire career for two decades and we haven't really managed to to bend the curve even, let alone like actually drive costs back down? Uh, well, it hasn't just been about cost. We've had the problem of affordable housing mounting in the Bay Area and California for years. We've simply created too many jobs and not kept up with um, the need for housing that goes along with that. So that simple math has put us in a place um, where we've had a, a growing need that's been well identified. And um, when we think about our neighbors, our neighborhoods and many of our cities all throughout the state, not wanting to build the classic sort of not in my backyard. Had we, looking back, had we done that building through the private sector and the public sector, we would have, um, we wouldn't be in this place today. We are talking about the rising cost of building affordable housing for low-income renters with Heather Hood, VP of Northern California for Enterprise Community Partners, nonprofit focused on policy and funding innovations and affordable housing. Liam Dillon, statewide housing affordability and neighborhood change reporter with the LA Times. Ben Metcalf, managing director at the Turner Center at UC Berkeley, which is on housing innovation. After the break, we are going to have Tim Grayson, California State Assembly member for District 14, who's trying to do something about the financing uh, problems that nonprofit developers encounter trying to build affordable housing. And we also want to hear from you. What are your questions about how this kind of affordable housing works in your community? And what role do you think the government should play in providing housing for for low-income people? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Also, if you just have simple questions about why does this cost so much and how and where are the costs, give us those too. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about the rising costs of building affordable housing for low-income renters. We've got a great panel, and we want to add Tim Grayson, California State Assembly Member for District 14. That's got portions of Contra Costa and Solano counties. Welcome, Assembly Member Grayson. Glad to be with you today. So what do you think is broken with how the state funds affordable housing? Well, uh, we could start with uh, all the different entities that currently administer affordable housing funding. 
And uh, when it comes to building affordable housing in California, it's almost a mandate that uh, you have to apply uh, and layer that funding, uh, layer the funding sources. So it means going to different sources for uh, funding for affordable housing. When you say different sources, you just mean literally within the state government, there's a bunch of different entities which each have a slice of the pie and then they can hand you some and all the other people, uh, all those other agencies also hand you some and that becomes the total amount of money you've gotten from the state. That is correct. As a matter of fact, if, if I may, uh, I know that uh, it was mentioned prior about five, eight, I will focus on four you have the California Housing Finance Agency, you have the California Tax Allocation uh, Credit Allocation Committee, then you have the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee on top of HCD, the Housing uh, uh, Department for California. And uh, they all have four different applications, four different committees, four different processes that are not aligned on a timeline and are not aligned with uh, the qualifications. So in some cases, qualifications may conflict with other uh, uh, qualifications that is on a different application. Got it. So you are trying to put forward legislation, AB 2305, or you did put together this legislation. Um, What was it supposed to do and what happened to it? Well, it was supposed to fall in line with, uh, out out of the the 10 largest states, not including California, six already oversee housing finance in a single agency. Hmm. All this bill would have done was uh, keep the uh, all the agencies autonomous, but it would have brought them together into one committee for a one-stop shop, one application, one committee, one timeline with app with qualifications that would work together and complement each other. Like just a uh, like when you could start applying to colleges with a common application, you'd have to fill out twenty applications, the same information on on these things with one common app. Um, there was some pushback. Uh, State Treasurer Fiona Ma said that your bill wouldn't actually end up streamlining the bureaucracy, but create another layer of it. What what was your response to that? Uh, My response to that was simply that uh, we have multiple independent studies from the Little Hoover Commission to the State Auditor to the Turner Center for UC Berkeley that all came out uh, with studies calling for the very action that AB 2305 would have been able to do. So what happened to 2305 and are you, I know it didn't actually pass, seems to have died in the state Senate. Uh, What do you do now? So I chose to uh, uh, only select a uh, testimony only hearing so that we could keep the conversation going. We will continue to move forward uh, as far as uh, a coalition and we will fight. As far as cost, your previous comments uh, or comments that were made previously about creating jobs, but not aligning it with housing through the planning, that added to the cost. The comment about the consultants and the lawyers that are needed to layer these financing uh, tools, that uh, accounts for the cost. Uh, From a uh, general contractor, time is money, and that accounts for the cost, but also impact fees on a local level. That accounts for the cost. These are all things that need to be included in a uh, a large uh, larger conversation. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts just before we let you go? We know you got a busy day. What what should be done to make affordable housing production more efficient? Well, I think uh, many things. Obviously, streamlining is very important. Addressing the labor issue uh, and understanding that uh, uh, labor is a large component. Of course, we do have. 
the cost of construction when it comes to materials, something we don't have a lot of control over, but I do believe we have other ways. One of the things that we lost was our redevelopment agencies. Those redevelopment agencies throughout California local jurisdictions helped cover the cost of infrastructure for affordable housing. When we lost redevelopment agencies, we lost financing for affordable housing. This is something we need to address on the state level. Uh, Streamlining and permitting needs to be addressed on a local level in partnership with the state and definitely addressing all the different funding mechanisms and coordinating them to benefit the development of affordable housing so people that need it the most are not the ones that suffer the most because it's not being done. Thanks so much, Tim Grayson, California State Assembly member for District 14. He's your uh, representative. If you're out in portions of Contra Costa and Solano counties, thanks for joining us this morning. Alexis, this is Heather. I I just want to commend Assembly Member Grayson for the hard work he's trying to do and completely agree that the solution to rising costs of affordable housing is not to build less. It's the solution is to make it easier so we can build with less. Um, The chutes and ladders that... Tim was describing are are just so heartbreaking and hard to watch. Um, But there are some bright lights. We have cities like Redwood City, who has done a lot of streamlining. We've got um, many cities, at least in the Bay Area, like Daly City and Belmont, who are looking for a CEQA categorical exemption. Oakland's done a bunch to to look for uh, cost savings in the entitlement process or for different different types of construction. So I just want to lift up some positive examples. And also, while we can sort of be mad at the state for various reasons, what we've learned, what we've seen during the pandemic was the state having a will and where there's a will, there's a way in Project Home Key, which was the program Mm -hmm. and continues to be the program to buy hotels and motels and make them into supportive housing and at least um, temporary housing for people who are homeless the state was able to um, put together significant funds and um, see agencies working very quickly across um, uh, jurisdictional bounds, uh, across um, roles and and just put it together so that money could go out the door, technical assistance could go out the door. And within just 10 months, at least 9,000 homes were achieved. So um, with that kind of will, we could find a way. I want to bring in our, our first caller, uh, Alice in Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Yes, hi. Thank you. I would be interested in hearing more from the L.A. Times uh, journalist about what I think is the elephant in the room, which is the power of the trades unions um, putting prevailing wage requirements in all of the affordable housing bills in recent years, even when the funds don't come from public sources. Um, traditionally, you have alliance on the progressive side between those who um, want to see more affordable housing built, but also support um, union labor. But of course, the more you increase the cost of labor um, for these types of projects, the fewer get built. And um, I know there's been some reporting on that from the LA Times, and I would be interested in seeing a lot more because to me, that is the big elephant in the room that, um, you know, every bill that's coming through um, to encourage the development of affordable housing has these kind of requirements in it. Mm-hmm. Allison Berkeley, thank you for that question. And Liam, I want to extend it just a little bit. Yeah, I want to extend it to who who's getting paid in this, right? Because of course, you know, we <laughs> have the unions, which uh, which of course people note that higher union wages creates higher construction costs. I, I understand that. Right. But what about the developer cut too? I feel like we need to take those two things in, in, in tandem and say, 
yes, these are nonprofit developers who are working on this, but there are people whose salaries are being paid from these these projects and and what should be done on on both sides of that? Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of different things that are that are going on here as it relates to the to, to labor. I mean, yes, you know, we've identified, and this is a report that came out of you know Ben Metcalf's shop that talked about if you have union level wages or prevailing wages on a per project that could increase costs by uh, fifty thousand dollars per unit. Um, there also is a developer fee that is that that is you know essentially a developer profit on this that is regulated as well. And we you know we did see in the uh, in the um, USGAO study that I referenced earlier that that you know, those costs there are not out of line with uh, with what they are around the country. That being said, I think when you add all these things together, right, you, that's what is ending up creating the significant cost situation that we're in. And I think everyone could look towards, you know, what haircuts they may have to take to or is appropriate to take to keep things in line. I think that applies, you know, as much to, um, you know, developers as it does to labor, as it does to potential environmental, um, you know, benefits from a particular project or certain kind of building. And and again, I think it also goes back to what I had said earlier about there being no one in charge of the entire system as a whole. This is why we, you know, elect politicians, right, is to make these decisions about, you know, when costs begin to get out of control, who takes haircuts? And no one is really in charge of making those choices and say, well, developers, we should you know, cram down your profit on this labor. Maybe we should, you know, take away some uh, benefits that you have. Same with the environmental stuff. And so, you know, that again, as as I think, yeah. where the real gap is. You know, Ben Ben Metcalf, uh, wanted to tie a couple of things together. I mean, Tim Tim Grayson mentioned uh, the Department of Housing and Community Development, which used to be the director of. And we also have this this question of sort of how do you even cut a deal? Like if you were to try and cut a deal between unions and developers to try and bring their costs down, are you trying to do or, or with environmental groups so that they had you know lower environmental standards or whatever with these buildings? Like who actually even cuts that deal, especially if there are five different funding agencies that may actually cut separate deals in terms of what's going to be required and and the, the kind of thresholds that are available? Uh, so, I mean, none of these are easy, easy items to tackle. And I think the problem is not, no one of these is like the silver bullet either. I mean, the, the question of prevailing wages is sort of it's embedded in state statute. It's a pretty fundamental precept of uh, all public investments that they uh, do have to result in, in construction workers getting uh, decent paid jobs. I think questions around some of the environmental issues or uh, other labor benefits are also what sometimes this also plays out at the local level. These projects may get state funding, but they may also get local funding uh, or have to get approved uh, through a politically challenging local process. Um, so I think, I mean, I think the, the bigger point is correct, though, which is there are a lot of folks who engage in one way or another in the sort of policy making decisions around housing and more or less their incentives tend to go towards um, it's like a one way ratchet on these issues where really the only way to go is towards things that add cost um, and nobody really puts it all together and sees broadly uh, the big, big picture. There's no one single person that sits anywhere uh, that's thinking about what can be done to lower costs and where the greatest uh, pressure pressure points are or low hanging fruit are to to to, to, to push push back. Are there things you on. wish you could have done when you were director of, of HD that you that you just weren't able to get done because of different reasons that you feel like would have made a big impact? 
I mean, the one thing that we did uh, very successfully do, I think, was making it much easier for projects to get approved and through their entitlement process. That had been a major barrier that projects were getting delayed um, and getting subject to litigation. And we, we were able to create a channel uh, that I think a lot of affordable housing, most affordable housing development is now using that allows them to move through. So that's one place where I think we've had some success. Um, I definitely feel like the California building code uh, has really grown um, uh, substantially. I don't think we've done enough work on that. I definitely think something Grayson mentioned some of his work around impact fees. Uh, you know, we, we have jurisdictions in the Bay Area that are, uh, I think we, we looked at this a couple of years back and, you know, Fremont was charging $80,000 per unit on multifamily units and just sort of taxes on these. I mean, sure, the cities need that money, but are there other places that they could be getting that revenue from? Um, so like that was a place that I just feel like a lot of work ought to be getting done, hasn't been getting done. Um, and then I think the other place is just, you know, spurring innovation. We, we haven't done a good job at creating opportunities for folks to do things differently. Uh, let me give an example. Um, there's been a lot of hype, uh, around modular housing, so factory-built modules that would get built off-site in the Central Valley or in Idaho, wherever, and then get shipped in uh, to the project site, dropped in place. Um, and a lot of hope that this would be able, this industrialized construction would be a way to sort of short-circuit some of our cost issues. Um, there's been a fair amount of experimentation over the last few years, but it hasn't been coordinated or really done in the way that's been... Uh, uh, that's really showed um, huge cost. That showed a lot of time savings, but not always a lot of cost savings. Uh, we did an evaluation of a project in San Francisco called the Tehannon Project on 833 Bryant, um, which actually did have significant cost savings, but it brought the modular together with the streamlined entitlements. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of back and forth on the design review and with very, very flexible, in this case, philanthropic capital that could bridge the public subsidy coming in later. So you freed the project from the vagaries of the public financing, you freed it from the vagaries of the local design review, and you let it deploy modular housing. And in that case, it was, it was uh, impressive. I mean, it was uh, compared to comparable projects, we calculated it out as getting built 25% less per unit, 30% faster. You had a design construction team there that whose financial incentives were aligned. You know, they, they were getting compensated based on what their cost was. Uh, and how quickly they could deliver. So I think there is a different way to do it, but yeah, we haven't we haven't had really an impetus for that, except in a very ad hoc way. Let me uh, let me dip into the calls that are coming in really uh, quickly here. Uh, Weyaka from in Santa Rosa, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I love this subject, and of course, as a Californian, I think we're all pretty passionate about this. My question is, is that. Are we only talking about low-income housing, and can we also talk about middle-income housing? And it feels like, well, it doesn't feel like, but it seems that the last time track homes were built were in the 80s. Like, do we, do we, can we even consider um, family homes? Like, are these only, are we only talking about track, I mean, excuse me, uh, apartment complexes, or can we talk about families and homes for families and middle income housing. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, uh, interesting question. I I mean, I do think tract homes are still, uh, out there as a pretty common housing typology, particularly outside of our bigger cities. Uh, but I did want to ask you, you know, Heather Hood, one of the things that I think might be surprising to people is 
how many people actually might come under the umbrella of what is considered, you know, uh, low income, if not, you know, very or extremely, which are technical <laughs> terms for the state. Uh, like, w- how would you describe, like, who actually is, is helped by affordable housing projects? Good question. Well, it, there's a, it's really a technical thing, and I'll try not to be too wonky about it. That's why I threw it to you. I was like, I, I'm not going to try and explain this. <laughs> yep. So in every region, every subregion, there is something called an area median income. In the Bay Area, it's uh, just over $100,000. And that changes for family size and um, so on. But generally, there's a median. And um, affordable housing is generally for people who are making uh, between zero and 80% of the area median income, which means that they're not able to pay the full rent typically on the market. So they're looking for something that has some form of subsidy. And our expectation, and this is true across the country, is that people will be able to pay a third of their income for housing. What's happening now is that many people are called cost burdened. And that means that they're paying well over 30, in some cases, 60% of their area median income. So what we're tra- what we're talking about in terms of Low income is under 80% and moderate income would be somewhere between 80 and 120% or 150%. So when you talk about wanting to build middle income housing or tract homes, that's hard still to do um, in this region, at least in the Bay Area or a big region like LA, um, just with the market. Yeah. It's just, just people, housing yeah. is expensive. And just to give people an idea of what that means for, say, Alameda County, family of four, low incomes considered anything under one hundred and ten thousand dollars, one hundred nine thousand six hundred. So these are there's a lot of people who need help in our region, and that's what we're trying to address here. We're talking about the rising costs of building affordable housing with Heather Hood, VP of Northern California for Enterprise Community Partners, Liam Dillon, statewide housing affordability and neighborhood change reporter at the LA Times, Ben Metcalf, managing director at the Turner Center of Housing Innovation at Berkeley. And in this segment earlier, we were joined by Tim Grayson, California State Assembly member for District 14. We're trying to get to as many of your calls and comments as we can. There's a lot coming in. We'd love to know from you, what should affordable housing look like in your community? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the rising costs of building affordable housing for low-income renters. We're joined by Liam Dillon of the LA Times, Heather Hood of Enterprise Community Partners, and Ben Metcalf, now of the Turner Center, former 
director of California of the California Department of Housing and Community Development. Um, you know, Heather, just based on some of the comments and questions that have been coming in, I did want to take a step back and say, you know, what is affordable housing and how has it essentially replaced what people knew as public housing in the in the past? Like, how did we get to the point where what we do is we work with nonprofit developers to build this affordable housing? Maybe you could just give us that little capsule history. Sure. And before I do that, I just want to clarify for the last um caller, what, who lives in affordable housing? We talked about it in terms of AMI, but what we're saying is low-income housing is for people who are, let's say, a single mother um, who's a teacher living with her two children or a barista in a local cafe whose partner is a physical therapist. So these are people that we know and are in our communities. How did we get here? It's a long story, but um, public housing is something that was built by um public agencies, typically centered in counties and cities. And um, from I was born in Philadelphia, and those looked like very tall, um, uh, poorly kept buildings where um, people were trying to live their lives, but it was clustering a lot of crime and problems, and um, people were trying to get by. Um, so we have these associations of pre Igo and all that. Um, what has happened is we've developed a very sophisticated, amazing nonprofit housing developers all throughout California. We're one of, we're known for having some of the most sophisticated systems in terms of the build the developers in the country. Um, how we got here is a long story, but where we are is that the nonprofit developers are mission oriented, who walk the earth trying to create affordable housing so that people have homes in their communities to choose and live in. They are the ones assembling all of those resources that Assemblymember Grayson was talking about or Ben was talking about, um, where they're putting together the idea, working with the community to have um, a sense of what is needed in the community, doing all of the studies to make sure the soils are right, um, working with the city, partnering with neighbors, then moving on to working with upwards of 15 to 20 finance partners to cobble together the resources to build the project. So they're those sort of um, shepherds who are taking the five to eight year process per project in order to get affordable housing nestled in communities so people have a place to call home. You know, Liam, when when I hear that process, I think about all those steps and I think about how it seems like we've been led into this Byzantine kind of scenario where this can't be the best way to build <laughs> low-cost, high-quality, affordable housing, and yet we kind of feel like we're stuck in this system right now. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think to that to that point, I'm not you know casting you know aspersions on on any nonprofit developers here, but you have to have in order to be able to navigate the system, you have to have a level of sophistication that that Heather just discussed, and you know you wonder what the cost might be or the ability to build might be if you didn't have to have that level of sophistication to be able to do it. You know, for this story and interview that I did that didn't end up making it was with um, a woman named, uh, you know, Elaine, Br- Elaine Brown, a uh, former head of the Black Panther Party in, uh, in, in, in Oakland. She's a co-developer on one of the projects that's over a um, over million dollars a unit. And she said, look, you know, the folks that she talks to in the community would love to be able to build, you know, Black contractors, 
it would love to be able to build, um, you know, affordable housing projects in the state, but simply do not have the the ability because of how complex the system is to to navigate that system the same way that these sort of you know big um, companies, you know, big nonprofit developers are able to do it. And so, if you were able to have a system that was more streamlined, you know, more available, more accessible. I think that would not only allow for you know greater housing development, but also lower costs and and different kinds of people, different kinds of entities, different kinds of organizations and workers who could access that system. And so, as part of the sophistication, um, which I think is obviously necessary to 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 navigate what we have, you're creating a lot of barriers, not just for um, building housing, but also who is able to build that housing. Yeah. Look, can I can I jump yeah. in? I mean, I, I think part of what we're getting to here is that affordable housing system that we've built really needs to be deployed in the context of those folks who are most vulnerable and lowest income. So formerly unhoused, uh, folks who are right on the edge. And I think the bigger problem that we have to solve is that the, you know, the marketplace isn't delivering entry-level accessible homes. I mean, call them tract homes or just call them workforce housing. We've sort of built a world in which when the market goes to build, invariably what it's producing is very high-end, mm-hmm. expensive, high-renting homes because the costs are so high. So I think we have to figure out how to sort of unlock that market rate housing to take some of the pressure off. I think we also need to think about sort of naturally affordable um, products. I mean, we've, we've made a lot of progress in making it easier to build accessory uh, dwelling units, for example, which are often pretty cheap and small and, and rent for smaller amounts, you know, cottages in people's backyards or garage conversions. I think that we just put out a report yesterday also looking at uh, this new system of having governmental entities that buy existing multifamily market rate properties, but get mm-hmm. uh, tax relief. They, they get a waiver on property taxes and, and can use tax financing. And so that allows them to sort of take the rents down at least a little bit. So I, mean, I think there are some other ways sort of in the middle, but we can't expect the sort of machine that we've built on affordable housing to be the solution yeah. for solving that full housing need for the low income population in the Bay Area, let alone the middle income. It's just not going to happen. One, Erica in Oakland has a question kind of related to this. Erica, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, So I live in between Oakland and Emeryville. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the pandemic and even before the pandemic, I have seen row after row of luxury condominiums, luxury apartments that are being built. And my question is this. Why is it that um, the city of Oakland has not come up with a mandate for the number of homes inside of these luxury condo and apartment buildings that go to affordable housing? BMR, AMI, adjusted median income is the norm in San Francisco. They have a 15 to 20 percent mandate for any homes that are built or apartment condos, luxury condos that are built. But we don't have that in Oakland. And my question is why? You know, I'm actually, I'm not sure what our regulations here in Oakland, also an Oakland uh, resident. Maybe, Ben, could you could you take this one? I assume you're pretty familiar with, like, the sort of East Bay uh, regs. I mean, these are uh, these are trade-offs. The, the higher your inclusionary requirement is, the more expensive it's going to functionally be for the builder to build. It means the fewer uh, projects that actually pencil and go, go forward. And so I think in places where you have a lot high demand, so there's probably neighborhoods in Oakland that could probably uh, have a have an inclusionary, but there are a lot of places in Oakland where that inclusionary component is just going to make the project infeasible. It won't pencil. 
it gets this bigger issue of just the cost being so high that uh, developers need to be able to get a lot of rents on the back ends to make a pencil to make that project work and go forward. I I'm really worried about this right now. Um, you know, with interest rates uh, spiking up over the last few months, what I'm hearing right now is that a lot of project you know, market rate projects that would have been feasible just a few months ago are now going on pause. Uh, we are very much looking at um, the Bay Area seeing a slowdown in, in new market rate homes getting built, which is not helpful either for the, the folks who can afford the condos or for folks if they're lucky, to, lucky enough to get one of those inclusionary units. It's not helpful if, if none of that happens. You know, you know, so now is not the time for us to be um, hitting cities with more inclusionary zoning or impact fees. However, as we've seen in the past, once we make our way out of what seems like it's going to be a recession in the next handful of years, um, let's say my prediction is four to five years from now would be a fantastic time once the market comes back up um, to talk about inclusionary zoning in some of these cities where it, it is going to be feasible again. So we've got a bunch of comments. I want to just give uh, one of our longer comments that sort of come in. It goes to some of the nuances of, of these difficult issues. Uh, Mary writes, I'm now a retired 33-year veteran of building affordable housing at EAH Housing. The consolidation of sources of funding is one issue, but the total amount of funding is also extremely important. It used to take one year to get through this funding morass. Now it is more common to be well north of two years to put funding together for a new building. The developer does not make more money because it takes longer to build a building. Nonprofits returns limited by regulation to a fraction of the money we have at risk. There's simply not enough money for the projects available through the state sources. The governor took excess revenue available in the budget recently to create an accelerator fund to allow projects that were ready to start construction so they could get the final amount of funding they needed while they were stuck in the queue for all the state sources. And that's rescued a number of projects that were stuck in the queue for years. Liam, you know, one of the things that is apparent in the reporting that you've done on this is that there are actually some solutions to the problems that we have, like piece by piece, yeah. maybe not a systemic ones, but like kind of checking down the list. What are the other ones? Like that accelerator fund seems like a good example of that, though I think some people think it was too small. Um, but what is what, what are some other examples of those things where you're like, okay, if we could do this, that would help? Sure. And I'll point out that, yes, obviously the accelerator fund, you know, did something to get projects unstuck. Uh, but at the same time, you know, five of the seven projects that we found that were over a million a unit were funded by that accelerator fund. Right. So so it may address, you know, getting units into the ground. It may address getting, uh, you know, projects, you know, you know, unstuck and, and moving forward. But it's not addressing the cost issues, um, you know, to build. Certainly. And I think, again, you know, I keep coming back to the fact that we we in and of themselves, we have so many things that we want to put on to affordable housing as various groups or others think is good, whether it's higher labor standards, whether it's higher environmental standards, whether it's parking requirements, whether it's, you know, local design review to make sure that neighbors like what the building looks like um, and they like the height of it or whatever. Right. All of those things. You could see how there's a constituency for that and people who want to in and of themselves, maybe that's a good idea. The problem is when you layer all those things together, you have um, a increasingly unsustainable system of financing, both for the time it takes and the cost that results. And so without having 
someone in charge of saying and making these hard choices and saying, you know, maybe because we're so close to transit, maybe we don't need to do a parking garage, right? Or maybe because we're so close to the coast, you know, maybe we don't have to have the same environmental standards for that building that we would have if we were in the Central Valley, right? And so no one's making those hard choices, though. And I think, you know, that is the thing that needs to be done to ensure that maybe in the abstract, we like all these things that we put onto affordable housing. But when it comes down to it, um, it leads to situations that are that are unsustainable. I also just want to make sure we don't lose sight of of the good that can be done by affordable housing as well. And I want to bring in uh, Sarah in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thanks for having this conversation. Yeah. So tell, tell us your um, story, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. My name is Sarah. Um, I am a middle school teacher in San Francisco, and I live in affordable housing. Um, I got my unit in March of 2020 after about 16 um, applications to the Mayor's Office of Housing um, Affordable Housing Lotteries. And um, even with the subsidy for my condo, um, the way it works in San Francisco is I have one mortgage. The city holds about half the rest of my condo. Um, I pay 40% of my income in housing costs. Oh, man. Yeah. That makes um, it hard to, to do and, anything else, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I do have a second job. Um, I work on the San Francisco Bay Ferries as a deckhand during the summers, uh, picking up extra shifts to have some money to have some fun. Yeah. Otherwise, there's not enough left over. Yeah. Um, my what would you do? Can really I just? Was, oh, sorry. Go sure. ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I was just going to ask you. You know, what what would you do? What would you have done if you weren't able to get affordable housing in the city? If I would have let, <clears throat> I've lived in San Francisco since two thousand and nine, and I was really dedicated to staying in the city and teaching in the city. Um, but without this unit, I would be forced to think about leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, we simply don't have enough space for people that make $70,000 a year who have master's degrees, who are teaching and working in our cities for our population. Um, it's just not possible. Yeah. I yeah. wanted to make one comment, though. Um, I think that there's a lot of hearts and minds that need to get one over to affordable housing. I think if people did the math, they would realize how challenging it is to save up a down payment when you only make $70,000 a year. Um, so the down payment on my unit was $90,000. I only make $70,000 a year. So the challenge of earning that and saving it was immense. And then in order for the math to add up, I have to stay in my unit for five to seven years uh, with all the costs, the closing costs, the moving costs, everything like that. But I'm one person, so I qualify for one bedroom. If I were to get pregnant during the process, my child wouldn't count as a second person until they were five years old. So I'm committed to staying here. I'm committed to teaching in the district. I live here. I love living here. But I wasn't allowed to buy a unit that would let me grow or change. It's a static system. So the generosity is not really there. Um, I guess I'm advocating for like a more generous uh, way to include people and like let them continue to grow and live here. Very complicated. And I, thanks for bringing us back to like sort of what this is really about, which is making sure that our communities are 
can include all the people who who both want to and need to live here, teach our children and just do be be members of of the community. Thank you so much for that um, call, Sarah. You know, uh, Liam, your reporting touched off this uh, this this show, and I wanted to give you the kind of the final word here on wh- where are you going next with this reporting? Like, what's the next thing we're going to get in the LA Times where we say to ourselves, like, oh, th- this is an excellent point. Two years ago, you were talking about these costs spiraling out of control. So, what are we going to be doing in two more years? Yeah, so I think it, it's probably time to look at you know whether there are alternatives to the system that that we have. And you know, Ben brought up uh, you know backyard homes, you know casitas, ADUs. Um, also, there's you know you're getting to the point where it it makes sense to have a serious discussion about whether in some places you know we brought up Concord, where a median single family home is significantly cheaper than a million dollars. You know and should we be thinking about deploying our limited resources in affordable housing in things that don't cost a million dollars a unit, whether it's, you know, buying existing properties, you know, wh- whether it's buying even new properties um, that, that market rate developers are, are building and then just buying them and you, often they're cheaper per unit as well. And so I think to me, if if no one is willing, and to this point, no one seems to have been willing to really tackle the high level problems that we have um, in, in financing these projects, then is it time to for policymakers or uh, you know or journalists or the public to start looking at what are some alternatives that may uh, you know allow people to to live um, in low income housing at, at you know at rates that's that's less expensive to build or to acquire. Mm-hmm. Got some uh, last listener comments to get to as well. A listener tweets, we cannot blame working class wages for inflated building costs. It's the developers, the designers, the project managers, the permitting, the materials, not union labor wages. Justin writes, I would like to note that prevailing wage does not equal union wages. Union wages can be and usually are higher. Also, building affordable housing by not paying a livable wage to the folks building it is hypocritical, don't you think? A lot of these costs are the way these housing buildings are manufactured, traditional stick built versus prefabricated. Todd uh, notes that in 2022, he's shocked to see wooden four-story stick construction dragging on for weeks being used to create apartments in Berkeley that should just be dropping in big prefabricated. Liz writes, uh, don't we now have a unique opportunity to generate significant affordable housing space at a vastly reduced cost by converting office buildings? Liz, we did a show on this a couple weeks ago. You can find that on kqed.org slash forum, and it will explain why it's actually a little bit more complicated than it than it might seem. Thank you so much to our panel. We've been talking about the rising costs of building affordable housing for low-income renters with Liam Dillon, Statewide Housing Affordability and Neighborhood Change Report at the LA Times. Thank you, Liam. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I've been joined by Heather Hood, VP of Northern California for Enterprise Community Partners, a nonprofit focused on policy and funding innovations. Thank you, Heather. You're very welcome. Have a great day. And we've been joined by Ben Metcalf, Managing Director at the Turner Center of Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Thank you, Ben. Great conversation. Happy to be on. Earlier, we were joined by Tim Grayson, California State Assembly Matter for District 14. You're listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.